Hey man, thank you, worship team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. <clears throat> Just want to give you a quick update on our preaching schedule as we get started. We're going to be in Proverbs uh, chapter 3 this morning, Proverbs 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Next week, uh, David Champagne is going to be teaching in our Proverbs series, so he's going to be pre- teaching a lesson on biblical priorities from Proverbs 4. Some of you may have noticed that we actually ended off not in chapter 2 last week, but we ended in chapter 1. We are going to skip around a little bit in the book of Proverbs, just because of the way the book is written. It's a little bit type of book, and you'll see that as we develop. The first scene, chapters 10 through 31, you get more into what we would consider a classic proverbial statement, these little pithy sayings with balance and meter and rhyme built into them, and we will get into that as we move along. So I'm excited for that, and I will actually be teaching in the equipping hour, so I'll be doing the nine o'clock session talking about the Holy Catholic Church. So you're going to want to come be a part of that, because I'm going to make a case for why we need to be Catholic next week. I really really am. Catholic means universal, for those of you who are nervous that we're changing our affiliation or doctrine. So that's what we will be doing uh, next week. I'm excited for that, excited to change it up a little bit. And coming off the sabbatical this summer, um, one of the things that we have been talking about as elders and David and I having conversations of just using the giftedness of other people around here as well. And uh, David is a gifted teacher and preacher, and so I'm so glad to be able to share uh, the pulpit with him and excited to be under the ministry of the word along with you next week. So Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3 is what we're going to be in this morning. As I was thinking about this passage and how it breaks down, uh, I want you to find a little handout. There was a handout in your bulletin that you should have received. If you didn't get one of those, you can go uh, grab one in the back if you'd like. I will have it mostly on the screen for you so you can uh, check it out there as well. But there's a certain structure that's built into this passage, and I think it's important, important enough that we actually are going to hand it to you and something that you can take home, and I know that you will cherish it forever and put it in your scrapbook one day, and when your kids find that, they'll go, oh wow, what a great place they were a part of one day down the road. As I was thinking about this passage and thinking about just how full this passage is, I was thinking about our modern world, and I don't know if you've had these thoughts before, but have you ever realized how many different circles many of us are in? I was talking to my friend Willio, Jeff prayed for Willio just a moment ago, he's in Haiti, and we were talking about this very thing. In the community that they're in, you really don't have that many circles because you don't have the same type of mobility that we have here. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have our family, and then you have your extended family, and then many of you have a church family that's not necessarily overlapping with the family and extended family. You have your work, you have friends that are there, you maybe have friends that you've kept up with from school, they're friends from different circles, you play sports, you have different hobbies, you have a friend group there, maybe you're part of a civic organization of some variety, maybe you live in a neighborhood, you have a community there within the neighborhood, maybe you're part of the HOA of your neighborhood, God bless you, if that's a ministry that you feel called to, I support you fully. Maybe you go to the gym, you have a fitness class. There's all kinds of different groups that you can be a part of. And one of the interesting things is in our world today, those groups can sort of end up being little silos unto themselves. And it's just kind of interesting the way that we live our life now. And I was talking to Willio, and I, said, I asked him the question. I said, what's something the American church can learn from the Haitian church? And he didn't miss a beat. He said, community. 
He said, we get community because you have to deal with things. He said, we don't have the option just to drive to the next town or to drive to the next church or whatever. He said, we just got to work it out. And so they'll have a knockdown drag out over something, maybe sometimes in the context of the church, and you see them the next day because they live 200 yards from you. They're right there. And so you just have to figure it out and you have to work it out. For us, I think this can lead us sometimes to being different people in those different roles. And that one's an interesting thing to me too. I know for me, I experience this sometimes. I come here to church and typically, unless you're pretty new, you've seen me before and probably know my name at least, even if we haven't gotten to know each other very well yet. But I go to the sports team practice with my kids or I go to the I don't know why the HOA is on my mind right now, but the neighborhood meeting, wherever that is, and I'm just a guy. And nobody hands me a microphone and says, would you share something today with us? It just doesn't work that way. And you're just, you're just a guy. Go to the gym, wherever it is, and that's, that's fine with me. I'm not looking for that. I joke sometimes about you got to get here early to get a seat in the back here at the church. You guys would find it a little bit ironic that when we were on sabbatical this summer, guess where I was? <laughs> I see y'all back there. <laughs> You're really my people. <laughs> kind of funny, almost a different persona, you know, rather than being the guy on the front that's seated and ready to go, I was just kind of wanted to slip in, just see what's going on, didn't want to make a spectacle. And some of you might even be surprised to see us in a setting like that, maybe even think we're acting differently. We're not really, but it's just an interesting thing. I'm afraid that sometimes we can so section our lives off and we think in so many different little silos that this concept that I'm trying to drive home about wisdom and what I believe the Bible is teaching us from the book of Proverbs, I, I, I'm going to say this a lot of different ways over the course of our study, it is pervasive, It is meant to pervade every part of our lives, whether you're at work or home or whatever it is that you're up to or doing. I gave you a definition last week, last two weeks actually, of wisdom. I want to hit that again, and it's going to be relevant again for us today. We've defined wisdom as this, the art of living well, good, and godly. All three terms are significant, and actually the term art is is significant as well. It's the art of living well, good, and godly. So much of Proverbs has to do with fittingness. What's the right proverb to use at a particular situation? And many times I'll give people the profound answer, it depends. And that frustrates people sometimes because they just want an answer. What should I do in this given situation? Well, it depends. The first question I want to know is what kind of person are you? What kind of virtue? What kind of character do you have? Who's the person that you're dealing with? What's the situation like? It depends. Wisdom is the art of living well, good, and godly hits three different aspects of life. Practical living, to make wise choices, to live smart, ethical, to do the right thing. Talked about that a good bit last week. And then there's a theological component. The fear of the Lord really is the beginning of knowledge and true wisdom a theological component of acknowledging God in all that we do. We'll see that again here this morning. So let's get into it. Gaining wisdom for life. 
head, hands, and heart. Let me read our text, and then I want to walk you through this little chart that I have that's in your bulletin. I'll also have it on the screen for us. Chapter 3 and verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your way straight, your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. Head, hands, heart. What you're gonna notice on that handout that I gave you, and I'll put it on the screen for us. <clears throat> I don't know if that writing comes through big enough for you to see. That's part of the reason I printed it off for you. But looking at the way some of y'all are holding that paper, maybe I should have printed it a little bit bigger. <laughs> Hopefully that's working for you. So what you're gonna see, the verses, the left column, verses one and two, three, four, five through eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. This is built around what's called in literature a chiasm. It's just a fancy or literary term, really. It's not even theological. It's a literary term that just means the main point's in the middle, all right? So the author's building us into this middle statement that they really want us to get, and then they're building us out of that. So the main point is really in the middle. The heart of this section is verses five through eight. And so the next column there that we have, what does this deal with? What's the category that wisdom is addressing here? Well, the first one is the head, what we know, the intellect. The second, the hands, what we do, how we treat other people. There's a social element to this. The third is the heart, and this is really the, I've used the term existential, which I understand is probably not a word you use in everyday life. If you, you know, start putting existential in your emails, um, people might think you ate a dictionary for breakfast and what, what is wrong with this person? Why are they saying that word? Existential, what I mean to say with that term is just it's in us. It's something that is a part of us. It's at your very core, in your gut. So head, intellect, hands, what you do, heart, your very essence and being, and then building back out, there's another hands element to honor the Lord or Yahweh with your wealth. There's a social dimension to that. And then lastly, he comes back to the intellect. Again, don't forget and don't forsake this teaching. So you see how this thing is built. There's correspondence between verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 12. There's also correspondence between verses 3 and 4 and 9 and 10. So you see it builds down, builds back out. That's how these things work. Let's talk about each one of these. At the bottom of your handout there, I have this verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And that's the main point here this morning, as we'll see also in Proverbs 4 again next week. So let's look at it. Here's how it breaks down. Going back to this just for a moment. One other little interesting note on the structure and how this proverb lays out 
If you'll notice, in the next column over, the one that says commands, and then the last one that says rewards, you'll notice I have numbers there, 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11. Then in the rewards, it's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. What's so interesting here is the odd numbers, these are things that you're told to do. The even numbers are things that God's going to do if you do those things, all right? So it's God's part and our part, and it's perfectly balanced and structured here in this particular proverb. All of scripture doesn't break down quite like this, and sometimes we try to find little patterns that we're kind of pushing it, but this one actually does. It's pretty clear um, where we, how this is structured and how it sets up. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about, first of all, the head, verses one and two. Intellectually, he says, my, my son, do not forget my teaching. This has been the emphasis all throughout Proverbs so far, and it's gonna continue to be the emphasis. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Let your heart not forget, and let you keep my commandments. To not forget and to keep the commandments. Now, notice there's a balance here. There's a not forgetting and there's a keeping. It would have been really inconceivable in the Hebrew mind to remember something and not act on it, all right? To remember something and to know something and not act on it. You're gonna see some examples of this in the very, very near future. We have a storm coming, as most of you are well aware, and I don't think it's gonna be terrible here and we'll keep an eye on things over the next, uh, next few days, of course, but there's certain people in certain low-lying areas on islands and uh, in, in vulnerable coastal areas, and they will be told again and again and again, you should leave, you should leave, you should leave, you should leave, and they won't, and then they're gonna get stuck, and this is just what happens. This is a knowing versus acting. You know the law of God, but yet you don't keep it. It's really inconceivable in the Hebrew mind. If you, to know it is to keep it. That's what it means to know it. And so these are two sides of the same coin. Don't forget my commandments and keep my commandments. Don't forget my teaching. Now, to make a really incredibly obvious, self-evident point here, in order to keep God's law, you must first what? You have to know it, right? Has anybody ever gotten in trouble? We should do like testimony time this morning. This would be too much fun. Has anybody ever violated a law and got in trouble for something you didn't actually know was illegal? Just raise your hand real quick. I just want to see. Yeah, all right. I see a few. I see a few. So I went fishing with my brother a few years ago, and we were in Alabama. Now that I'm a Florida resident, um, I don't have an Alabama uh, permanent license, so I bought a temporary license to go fishing with my brother. And the fishing's really good. It's in the fall, and we're catching a bunch of fish and having a great time, and then we see the the game warden coming around. He's going boat to boat, checking licenses. Not unusual for that area. We kind of expected that, actually. And so I'd gone to the trouble of buying a license, temporary license. So I'm kind of proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, come on over. Like, I'm good. Well, he comes over, and I show him my license. And he says, now, um, you, you, you have a saltwater license, right? And the way he says it, I thought, something's not quite right here. I had bought a saltwater license, because I'm in salt water catching saltwater fish, okay? But then he says, this is actually considered freshwater. I said, it's salt water and I'm fishing for saltwater fish. He says, yeah, I know. But he pointed to the bridge and he said, on the other side of the bridge is salt water. I was like, what? nobody told the redfish. They're here. I guess you have to have a cutoff somewhere. 
he was nice enough. He just gave me a warning, and we went, out about, we went about our way. He could tell I was trying, my heart was trying to keep the commandment, but I did not know the teaching. You have to know in order to keep. And I think there's this massive issue that we have today in the overall church with biblical illiteracy. We just don't know the word. We just don't know. We don't know the stories. We're not, we're not engrossed. We're not putting ourselves, we're not immersing ourselves in the scripture. We have so many other things that are pulling and so many other things that are controlling us. And so it's impossible to keep something that you don't know. And so this is the section of the sermon where I would just appeal to you, get some time in the word, spend some time with scripture, be around other people who point you to Christ and point you to the biblical stories. Get them in your mind. You can't keep what you don't know. This is part of the command here. You have to know it to keep it. And then notice the reward. Notice what happens. Now, I need to stop and explain what's going on here in Proverbs, and this is going to be a paradigm that we'll see over and over and over again. Don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So what do I get? If I keep God's law and I honor his commandments, what do I get out of the deal? Well, you get a long, peaceful life. Sweet deal, huh? I'm in. Sounds great. But what about the one who seems to do this? What about the one who does seem to honor the commandments? What about the one who does know the word of God? What about the one who's very careful to obey the Lord and love him and serve him. What about that one who dies young? What about that one who doesn't have peace and has a life full of strife? What do you do with that? And here I wanna introduce what I think is going on in Proverbs all over the place. It's what's called character consequence, okay? Character consequence. Life is somewhat predictable, but it's certainly not 100%. The type of person you are often determines the kind of outcome you get. This is just universally true. It's not 100% true. We all know that. Just think of a few scenarios. If you have a student and she's a good student, they work hard, they study, they actually look at their pacing guides and syllabus and actually try to do things that are on there and turn them in on time, takes notes in class, asks good questions, doesn't skip class, Generally speaking, are they going to do better or worse than the one who doesn't show up, doesn't look at the pacing guides, doesn't pay attention to the syllabus? Generally speaking, who's going to do better in class? Well, generally speaking, the one who's a good student. But it's not 100%, is it? That's why we studied Ecclesiastes, because there's a glitch in the system. The, The system's got a bug, and sometimes it gets you. Sometimes you hit the button, and it doesn't come out quite right. There's a glitch. But generally speaking, it's true. It's true at your work. If you're a person who shows up on time, you don't call out sick all the time, you take care of your responsibilities, you take care of your customers, you take care of your employees, you do what's right and good by them, generally speaking, you're going to get raises, you're going to move up the line. Generally speaking, that's going to happen. But it's not 100%. 
And so in Proverbs, I think we have this all the time. We have a character consequence. If you do this, generally you get this. But we recognize there are exceptions. Okay, so what do you get? You get length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That's the principle. You've probably seen the memes that go around from time to time on why women live longer than men. And then it's a whole series of pictures of men doing really, really, we'll say unwise things, dangerous ladders on tables and you know all sorts of things that they do sometimes. I was looking at some of these and I saw one. This guy was standing, he was in his house and there were two doors and he was trying to paint a high part of his ceiling. And he was actually standing on the doors, on top to reach up. And it was captioned, why women live longer than men. (laughs) Yes, that's true. To live by wisdom, it generally is going to work, life's just going to work better for you. It's just a general principle. That is typically true. You're also going to have peace. To live by God's commands, you will generally have more peace in your life. This word peace in Old Testament especially, it's shalom, it's so rich, and it's, it's not just the absence of strife, but it's the idea of wholeness, and it's used in a lot of different contexts. It's not just that you'll have the absence of strife, but you'll also have meaning, purpose, satisfaction. All of those things are built into this word, an idea for peace. So character consequence, that's going to be important as we talk through this. Don't forget my commandments, keep my commandments. What are you going to get? You'll get a long, peaceful life. Next, let's move to love and faithfulness. The next one. So we talked about the head, knowing and keeping God's commands. Now let's talk about doing something with the knowledge that we have of God. There's a social dynamic to this. Look at verse three. Let not steadfast love... This is God's covenant love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then what do you get out of it? Verse four. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Steadfast love and faithfulness. What an interesting way and what an interesting um, set of vocabulary to describe people that have wisdom. You may remember in the book of Exodus, there's a lot of ups and downs in the book of Exodus. There's one point where Israel is brought out there and they commit idolatry. They worship the golden calf. And God basically says, y'all can go to the land, but I'm not going with you. This is a disaster. He says, I'll even send my angel to clear out the land, but my presence, my glory presence isn't going with you. And the scripture records that this was a disastrous word. They they couldn't handle it. And so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God relents. He says, okay, I will go with you. And Moses asks for affirmation. God, affirm again. Let me see your glory presence again. And so what happens in Exodus 34 is an absolute profound passage. The Lord does reveal himself to Moses again, confirming and affirming that, yes, I will go with you. And then he says this. The Lord, that's Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are actually the exact words that we're told 
are supposed to be the wise person's character. Verse three, let not steadfast love and faithfulness, you're supposed to be God-like in your love and faithfulness. Don't let them be forsaken. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep them really, really close to you. That's the emphasis. There's a horizontal element to this and a vertical. There's a vertical in the sense of we love God in this way. Steadfast love is covenant love. We're faithful to him, but it also expresses itself in the way that we treat other people, doesn't it? And that's why the reward at the end, what do you get as a result of this? You'll find favor and good success or good repute, I think is a better word, in the sight of God and man. So as you treat others with love and you are faithful to your commitments, then this is what happens. This is how it goes. It is an impossibility. It's an impossibility to say that you love God and don't love people. They go together in the Bible. 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the command of God. You can't separate these things out. Notice the reward again, favor and good repute. Good reputation typically follows the one who acts in this way. There are a couple of stories of this. Um, I I like uh, in the ESV, which is, I know the translation many of you use and I use um, as well, it says good success. I actually like the word repute a little bit better there. When you hear good success, you might get the impression that I'm going to, you know, have higher commissions and sell more widgets this week or get raises, that sort of thing. That could be part of what's built into this word, but I think it's probably beyond just those like metrics like that that are measurable. There are a couple of examples of this in the scripture that I think are really, really helpful and good. Um, What about Joseph? Joseph was a man. He treated people and with steadfast love and faithfulness, and he ended up being in charge of a bunch of things at the end. But it wasn't exactly a straight line, was it? Wasn't a straight line. He finds himself in a pit, thinks he's going to be murdered and left. He's sold by his brothers into slavery, and then he gets there, and things are going well, and then he gets falsely accused of a terrible crime, and he gets thrown back in prison. And if he's reading this verse at this point, it says, if I show steadfast love and faithfulness, I'm going to bind them around my neck, then I'll have good success. Like, well, how successful have I been? <laughs> now I'm in a pit. <laughs> I, 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 this isn't working. So it's not an ascension straight to the top. But he does end up in the end. His character shines out. It's a long road. Daniel's the same way, uh, the book of Daniel and his friends. Uh, it's an up and down deal, but in the end, we see that they're vindicated. They're, justifi- they're justified in their actions. So this is what you get, favor and good repute. Peter talks a little bit about this over in the book of First Peter, that people who revile you, they won't have anything that really sticks. A friend, a mentor of mine, used to talking to pastor friends, he, said, he would used to say, just keep the glue off of you, okay? Keep the glue off of you. And what he meant by that is don't do shady things that things, accusations can stick to. Just don't keep the glue off of you. That way when somebody hurls an accusation, people around you go, no, no, that person wouldn't do that. 
I think that's part of the principle here. Is it 100%? Nope. Do people get falsely accused? Yes. Are they always vindicated in this lifetime? No, they're not. It's not 100%. But generally speaking, it is true. It does work this way. Let's move on to the central part. I've made the case that I think everything's building to this. These are probably the most memorable verses in Proverbs. I would imagine if you know any of the Proverbs, you probably know verses five and six. Beautiful, memorable. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is a central thrust. The heart, dealing with the heart. We've talked about the head, the knowing, the doing. Now we're talking about the heart. The heart really is the control center of who we are, of how we experience the world. And we are supposed to trust the Lord with all of our hearts. Now, when we talk about the heart, biblically speaking, we're really talking about something that's very different than how like Disney talks about the heart. I actually looked up some Disney songs this week, just trying to kind of get to the bottom of Disney theology. That may be a a quipping hour session coming up. My kids have actually forbidden me to go to Disney with them because I walk around, I mutter worldview types of things. They're like, would you just go sit in the coffee shop and do something else? Like, follow your heart. Like, do you know what the Bible says about the heart? This the heart's deceitful above all things, desperately sick. You really want to follow your heart? Anyways. So the Bible's idea of the heart, though, it is the control center, but it's not directive. It doesn't change. Just because you believe something and really, really, really want it to be true, like a Disney princess, doesn't make it true. I know that this is extremely upsetting for a few of you maybe out there. It just doesn't make it true. Can we trust our hearts? Do we really need to follow our hearts? I think we need to know what the Bible says about the nature and condition of the heart. We need to fill our hearts with the word of God. We need to have our hearts fully trusting in the Lord. And actually in verse five, this is almost exactly the opposite of the common conception of follow your heart. Trust in the Lord with your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. So what we've done is we've sort of inverted that and said, this is what I want in my heart, so I'm going to lean on that. That's exactly the opposite of what the verse is telling us to do. Something external from you, the word of God, the gospel needs to change your heart, and then you can lean on the understanding that's in your heart as it's informed by the word of God. The Bible says a lot about the heart, And we will encounter this again and again and again in Proverbs. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. In what ways do we lean on our own understanding? A few things, a few issues maybe today that we could talk about. We lean on our own understanding in things sometimes like marriage and relationships. What does the Bible really say? Does the Bible really define You can follow your heart or you can follow God's word. They'll lead you down different paths. What about even something like salvation? We just want to be nice and get along with everybody. It's like, well, you you call him this name. I call him Jesus. You call him something else. You found your way. I found my way. Let's just all get along and be happy. Like, well, 
I understand that. I understand that desire to not be a, a prickly personality and Christian. But at the same time, we have to say what God's word says. We don't lean on our own understanding. We lean on what God says, even if we don't necessarily love what we find. What about parenting? Don't follow your heart. Follow biblical principles. More on that in just a minute as he talks about fathers and sons again at the end. We could continue on. He says that when you do this, what's the reward that you get? You get straight paths, healing, and refreshment. This word used again is the word Derek in verse six. In all your paths, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths in all your ways, the Derek. If you acknowledge him in your path, the path, it's a term, it's a trail, a well-worn trail. Some of my fellow hunters out there, when you're walking through the woods and you see these little trails where a deer or whatever game you're chasing has been following, you know that's a good spot. That's where they're gonna be. And it's a, it's a path. And they've developed a habit of walking that particular path. Now if you just see one random track in the middle of a, you know, a trail or a field somewhere, you might have found something, but if you find a trail that's well-worn, you know that's the way they go. That's what I wanna be close to. And that's the term that's used here. In all your paths, your trails, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He makes it straight. Now, I know that many times we don't feel like our path is very straight. Maybe you feel this morning like you've tried to follow the Lord, you've tried to honor him the best you can, and you don't feel like you're on a straight, flat path. You feel like you're on a roller coaster, and you feel like you're up and down and all over the place. And I would just say a couple of things about that. Um, One, I think we have to back up and look at the 30,000-foot view, the view from the air, And we can see how God's working things out. I think the best illustration of this is a quilt. Some of you are quilters, I know, out there. When you're building a quilt, the backside of the quilt isn't always real pretty, is it? It looks chaotic. It looks like there's just lines and strings, thread going everywhere. But when you turn it around, you can see the pattern. You can see the beauty that's been assembled and put together. I think our lives are much that way. You can't anticipate why this particular twist or turn happened, but I can guarantee you everyone in this room can look back over the course of your life and you could put your finger on a point in time where there was something really, really, really badly that you wanted. You wanted it really badly and the Lord didn't give it to you and you know now that that was a good thing. I think every one of us has that experience somewhere in your life. And this is, it may have been an unexpected turn when the Lord didn't let you go down that road, but this is part of making the straight path. The Lord is working this out. Notice also that he says that this will be healing and refreshment to your body. When you follow the Lord, when you trust in him, healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's interesting. It's interesting. There's actually a physical component to this. As Christians, we believe uh, the term that we use uh, is psychosomatic union. That won't be on the test. You don't have to remember that one. Psychosomatic union, what, what that simply means is that we are a combination. There's a material part of us and an immaterial part of us, all right? That's all that term means. 
material part and there's an immaterial part. Here's what's so interesting about us as humans. The immaterial part can affect the material part. You all know this. If I could, I could say certain names of political figures right now, and some of you would have an immediate reaction. If we were watching your blood pressure, if we were watching your heart rate, there would be an increase. If you have a sports team that you really follow, have you ever found yourself in the middle of watching a sports team and you think, why do I care so much about this? What, why is this such a deal? But it's a deal, isn't it? And you find yourself, your heart starts beating fast and you find yourself standing up and throwing your hands up and screaming and it makes you feel a particular way. Why? Maybe you have a big sales meeting this week, a job interview, may get little butterflies in your stomach. Why do you feel that way? It's interesting, isn't it? So what's the Proverbs point here? When you trust in the Lord, when you're finding your peace, rest, confidence in him, it actually has a way of bringing healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There are so many people that go to the doctor every year thinking they're having a heart attack, and really what they're doing is dealing with stress. You know, this is true. This is just so true. It just has a way of affecting our bodies. And I think Proverbs is tapping into that. It will affect you. All right, let's move along. So what's the payoff? What's the reward? Straight paths. You don't always know how this path is straight or what the Lord is up to, but he is in healing and refreshment for your body. Character consequence. Next, honor Yahweh, the Lord, with your wealth. What you get out of that is you will have plenty. Let's talk about this. Verse nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Okay, so the word honor, it's, it's actually really interesting what's going on here. The word honor is actually the word glory, which really means heavy, weightiness. Give weight to God in the decisions you make with, from your wealth. Now, we see the term wealth and we may think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I ain't wealthy. <laughs> That's not what's being spoken of here. He's talking about resources. And it's really the idea is give weight to God from the resources you have entrusted to you. That's the idea. How are you using what God has given you? Weighty, substantive, heavy. Treat the Lord not as weightless, but as weighty. And it's from the first fruits. First fruits are important, important concept in the Old Testament, but just if you're a farmer, the first fruit is very important because you don't really have a guarantee that the second, you know, the second harvest is coming. But you got these. You got these in the bank. And he says, give out of that, not just out of the extra at the end of the year. God, the idea of God, it's like an anvil sitting in the middle of the room. You just have to work around it. Get, give weight to. God displaces everything else. You have to deal with it. I've heard people say before, it, I don't love this phrase, but I, I understand the heart of it, but I don't, I, I'll, I'll talk about why my issue with this in just a second. They'll say something like this, show me your calendar and your bank account, and I'll show you where your priorities are. All right, have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. And I don't think that actually works for a lot of people. 
Here's why. You know you spend roughly a third of your life at work, if you work most of your whole life, and you spend roughly a third of your life asleep, all right? So overall, big picture, calendar, life view, what's the most important things to you? Well, two-thirds of your life are spent asleep or at work, so those must be the most important things to you. Like, is that work for you? It doesn't for me. It doesn't. It doesn't really work that way. If you look at your, uh, for most people, their largest expense monthly is their house. And um, it's just the way it is. If you want to go to the boss this week and say, you know what, I just realized that I'm going to spend roughly a third of my life working. And in order to balance biblical priorities, I don't really want that to be the case anymore. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you 15 hours a week because I really need to make sure that I have time to study my Bible. Um, I want to be able to do that. And then I have other service projects and other things that I need to do. So this 40-hour thing really ain't going to work for me anymore. Uh, How's that going to work out? That would be unwise. We'll get a lot of Proverbs that deal with that sort of thing. So it's not just a straight uh, calculation on how you use your resources, your time, your wealth, and your money. It's, it's not just a straight calculation. It's a, it's, it's a bigger question, really. It's a question of priority. You know, are you giving God weight in the resources that he's allocated to you to use? That's the question. And how are you going to do that? And it's not a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. What's the payoff of that? Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, obviously, this is how they would accumulate wealth back in that day. You have to be careful when you apply verses like this. I don't think most of you would want barns full of plenty. You wouldn't really know what to do with it. And we'll talk about the HOA again. They wouldn't appreciate this at all. All of a sudden, you have a gigantic barn in your backyard. How funny would that be in some of our neighborhoods? That's not going to work, sir. That is over your privacy fence. It's just not going to happen. But he's talking about the one who uses a resource as well, the one who gives weight to God, he's the one that in the end, he ends up better off. He's given out of the net, or the gross, not just the net. I have known so many people who have so many stories about how they were faithful to the Lord with the resources he gave them, as little as they were, and watching how the Lord continues to bless that. It's amazing. I could tell you story after story after story after story. We saw it all the time. When we were in seminary, and you would see these people, and they're just struggling to pay the bills, pay the tuition, and then all of a sudden, you know, money would show up unexpectedly. Tons of these stories, and I think all of you have seen these before. The Lord blesses that. And again, it doesn't mean there aren't glitches in the system. I've known some very good people that went broke as well. All right, so honor the Lord with your wealth. Really, from your wealth is the idea. And then lastly, do not despise discipline and reproof. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. He talks, uses parenting as an analogy to talk about how God cares for us. These verses have a tone of correction to them, and they're really almost a corrective, if you will, or a balance to the previous verses. 
It's not going to be a straight line to gain and to having your barns full because sometimes the Lord is going to use a time of want and need in order to reprove and discipline you. He's going to use that. Proverbs 3, verse 24, a little bit later, he says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. This is actually the closest thing that we have to our little proverb that we use you probably know it. Spare the rod, spoil the child. That's actually not in the Bible. I think it's a fairly you know, parallel thought to what we see here. It's actually not exactly there. It's ironic that sometimes by wanting to spare discipline, we actually end up doing harm in the end to the children. You all know what happens when you have a child that has zero discipline in their life. They end up just being kind of hard to hang out with kind of difficult to be around. We let natural affection take over and we don't, we, we actually prefer that over actual love and what's good for that kid and for the parent and for everybody else as well. God does this with us as well. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Don't despise the correction of the Lord, whether it be through some material means and circumstance or be it through maybe friends, family, whoever it is that brings a corrective to you. Don't despise that. That's the path of the fool. Follow the path of the wise. Don't despise his correction. Let me make one other note on this and then... We'll wrap it up. Just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. We do receive the discipline of the Lord. I fully, 100% believe that. We do not experience the wrath of God, though, as Christians. The wrath of God was taken by Jesus on the cross. It's not the wrath of God. He's not mad at you, but he will get your attention, and he will use corrective discipline in the process of doing that. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've believed in Jesus, you've trusted in him as your savior, then you will never experience his wrath. But he will keep your attention. He's not gonna let his children run around and disobey him. He will get our attention. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your truth and such a beautifully balanced and put together passage like we have here before us today. And Lord, we see these benefits of following you It's amazing to see a long, peaceful life, favor, good repute with others, straight paths, healing, refreshment, having plenty, not having scarcity or need, the love of the Father with us. It's amazing. Why would we choose anything else? And yet sometimes we do find ourselves wandering down the path of the fool. We find ourselves stopping to linger and look down the path of folly just to see what's down there because in our flesh we are enticed by those things. Lord, help us to commit anew again today to following your wisdom in every arena of life. May we not section ourselves off, but with our head, our hands, our heart, the things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we love, may we honor you in all of that. May we consider you to be weighty in all areas of our lives, we pray. We praise things in Christ's name, amen.